Joe Byron. Joe Byron. Uh, I, I, this, I don't think this joke hits for anybody else, but uh, something that has been making me laugh uh, to myself is just imagining somebody mistaking Joe Biden for Jay Balvin. That is funny. <laughs> President Jay Balvin. Jay Balvin. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good joke. That's a, that's like in who weekly they do like name, name, uh, confusion, name, confusion, yeah. name, confusion. Um, hello, this is infinite cast, uh, the podcast where we read infinite, uh, jest. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we've been off for like two weeks. Well, not a, not according to our schedule, but we haven't recorded in a while. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't recorded in a while. So we're, uh, getting back into it. Um, Molly, did I tell you that I had like kind of an infinite jest dream? Um, I don't think you did, but tell me now. Um, I certainly tell you enough of my dreams <laughs> every morning. You, I owe, I owe you one. Uh, it was, I, 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 it was something that I was like clearly in my mind, like, oh, this is an infinite jest thing. Uh, but you just being in the aseptic, fluorescent lit, like kind of grungy meeting room of a house, like a house that has been converted into a like dorm type thing. Oh yeah, in um. In Massachusetts, like it, it, that that, that New type England, of place, yeah, yeah. exactly. And it was like, you know, it's one of, it's a dream, so it doesn't have like a narrative to it, but it was just like the experience of being in there and there were other people in there and maybe we were eating food out of like cater trays or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, uh, you know, and I was just vibes. <laughs> but in my head, I was like, oh, I'm in uh edit house, drug edit, and alcohol recovery. House. I'm in edit house, drug and alcohol recovery house. That's funny. Um, But so, yeah, that happened. I wish I would have made my mind have a more specific dream. Uh, I would like to have a dream where I just vibe out uh, talking with uh, Don Gately about <laughs> bullshit nothing to distract ourselves from not drinking. Yeah. <laughs> right? Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah. It's a, it sounds like uh, Don Gately is just a, a pleasant person to talk to. Yeah, exactly. I just want I, I want to talk to him about nothing. I want to have like a Seinfeld conversation mm-hmm. with uh, with Don, Don Gately. Yeah. I want him to drive me around in that uh, <laughs> the, Aventura. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do we got today? We're we're right in the middle of a. Uh, I'm not even sure we'll finish it. We'll, let's try to do a bit a big fat one because I think we're probably going to miss uh, a holiday week. Yeah. Um. But we're we're still in the we're in the waiting room. Uh. At, I'm in the waiting room. Uh. As the boys might may or may not be punished for uh. The eschaton debacle. Yes. Uh, punish, uh, punished how? Waiting for punish. Um, somebody pointed out to you that the wallpaper in the waiting room is the cover of the yes. book. Yes, great, great uh, catch. The book cover design is the the blue sky and the slightly unnerving blue sky and clouds that is also on seat, uh, the waiting room wallpaper. Uh, I don't want to get uh, take too long before we start, <laughs> but the cover of this book really is... Like, if it is a reference to the the wallpaper of this section, I mean, I guess that's a very deep cut reference, but it is very funny because it's like, how, 
it, it very much feels like, I don't know how you fucking sell this book, man. Just like put some clouds on the cover. It's, you know? it's so iconic, though. It is very iconic. It seems very much of its. I'm sure people tried to copy it after mm-hmm. in the couple of years after. But, you know, even when you think of like the literary Jonathan's, their covers are always <laughs> kind of like, I don't know, whatever, man. And now everything is like an abstract painting. Yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know, fucking red shapes, <laughs> red and blue shapes. The I will I, I will write a book and uh not being able to participate in the cover design will drive me completely mm. bats. Um it would be funny if Infinite Just came out today and the name of the book was like now now is the time where you jest infinitely forever. And, and but and but so is so, therefore such as And but so still on is it for you to others. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's All right, get let's into start. it. Uh, here we are. Dean of females, Avril M. in Condensa presides over the diddle check when Dr. Rusk is otherwise engaged. And Rusk is so very rarely legitimately engaged that the fat uh, Rusk is the school psychologist that no one likes because yeah. she sucks and is bad. Rusk is so very rarely legitimately engaged that the fact that it's the moms doing diddle prevention duty today leads Hal to fear that Rusk is maybe in there in the headmaster's office getting ready to be in on the upcoming disciplinary scene. CT would have to be really upset to want to have Rusk included. Rusk might be there more for CT than for any studential <laughs> psyches. Axe Handle has his eyes closed and is repeating a mnemonic limerick about Brewster's angle for the least taught quadrivial uh, colloquium reflections on refraction. Michael Pemulus is still scanning a serrated scroll of NSTAT axiomatic pink 2, which looks to be all math and spiky brackets, and bobbing, ignoring Ann Kitten Plan's murderous looks and tubercular throat clearings at the squeaking of his bobbing blue chair. <laughs> you can tell Pemulus really is studying because he keeps turning something upside down and then right side up. Hal declines to share his Rusk being in there with Tavis worries with Michael Pemulus, not just because Hal avoids ever mentioning Rusk's name, but also because Pemulus loathes Rusk with a hard and uh, gem-like flame, uh, <laughs> and though he'd never admit it, is already clearly nauseated with worry that he's going to get the lion's share of the blame for damage to Lord and Postlethwaite, and not only receive corrective on-court discipline, but maybe get denied a spot on the trip to Tucson's Whataburger, or worse. And that takes us to a footnote. And note 2.11. As with the neurogastric thing, only Ted Schacht and Hal know that Pemulus's deepest dread is of academic or disciplinary expulsion and ejection, of having to schlep back down Comav into blue-collar Alston, diploma and ticket outless, and now in his final ETA year, the dread's increased many-fold and is one reason Pemulus takes such elaborate precautions in all extracurriculars, making a substance customer explicitly suborn him, etc., and is why Hal and Shaq presented him on his last birthday with the poster over Pemulus's room's console that has a careworn, large-crowned king sitting on his throne, stroking his chin and brooding with the caption, "Yes, I'm paranoid, but am I paranoid enough?" <laughs> you brought that. I brought that up before because it was a sub. It was referenced in a different endnote, and I the king. Yeah, uh, I want that poster. Yeah, that's. It sounds like the uh, pondering his orb guy. Yes. <laughs> um, one thing that I appreciate that he gets across here is how stressful it is to be a high schooler. That sucks. Uh, that you have to do all this bullshit around being a uh, fucking like junior tennis pro, but also like no like the quadratic formula and like all that stuff, like no physics. Yeah. And, oh god, it sucks. It really, really fucking sucks. You have to know. You have to think about so many things, and your so mind many is different not, kind of things. Yeah, exactly. From fucking Shakespeare 
to chemistry at, like at the same time you might have tests on both of those things at the same time and you have to go play like high level tennis and you're so horny oh god and so mad it takes me like if i have one thing i need to think about in a day it usually that that is like of importance that it usually disrupts my entire fucking day uh because I have to think about it so much and thinking about all those things all at once, the chemistry and the Shakespeare <laughs> the and the tennis. Uh, uh, I, I think that he, he, he gets that across without putting too fine a point on it, but that these kids are fucking stressed, stressed out. Yeah. And then all, and the way that they're going to alleviate it is their one day where they're going to obliterate their minds on this DMT. Right. Right. Who yeah. wouldn't? Avril is indirect but syntactically crisp with a couple dozen little girls in there probing. <laughs> the girls' outfits involve blue at many levels of hue and intensity and varied combination. Avril and Condenza's voice is higher on the register than one would expect from a woman so imposingly tall. It is high and sort of airy. Oddly insubstantial is the ETA consensus. Orrin says one reason Avril dislikes music is that whenever she hums along, she sounds insane. <laughs> The absence of a door to the mom's office means you might as well be in there in terms of being able to hear what's going on. She has little sense of spatial privacy or boundary, having been so much alone so much when a child. Lateral Alice Moore wears a sort of surreal combination of black lycra spandex and filmy green tulle. <laughs> the portable stereo headphones she wears, uh, entering what appear to be response macros for 80-plus received invitations to next week's Whataburger, Whataburger Invitational, are powder blue. Her typing is clearly in sync with something's backbeat. Her lips and cheek points are the vague robin's egg of cyanosis. Just why Michael Pemulus hates Dr. Rusk is unclear and seems free-floating. Hal gets a different answer from Pemulus every time. Hal himself feels uncomfortable around Dolores Rusk and avoids her, but isn't aware of any particular reason for being uncomfortable around her. But Pemulus positively detests Rusk. It was Pemulus who dickied in at night and hooked a Delco battery up to the inside brass knob of her locked office door at age 15, Rusk's office door, the first door over in the other little hallway at the lobby's northeast corner next to the shift nurse's office and infirmary, then exiting Rusk's office by a window and thorny hedge, <laughs> which Pemulus was extremely fortunate no one but Hal and Shaq and maybe Mario knew he authored the hot knob because the whole scheme turned quickly disastrous because it was an elderly Brighton Irish cleaning lady who got to the hot knob first at the like 0500 hours and it turns out Pemulus had seriously undercalculated the brass conducted Delco voltage involved and if the cleaning lady hadn't been yet wearing yellow rubber cleaning lady gloves she would have ended up with way worse than the permanent perm and irreversible crossed eyes she regained consciousness with and the cleaning lady's ward boss was Upper Brighton's infamous FX follow that ambulance burn <laughs> rapacious personal injury JD and the academy's workman's comp premiums had skyrocketed and the whole thing was still in litigation <laughs> isn't that basically a gag from uh, Home Alone in, mm, like putting like the, the, the hot iron yeah. on the, yes. the knob Avril had eschewed an office door even before the cleaning lady Kurtwang for simple enclosure Kurt reasons. <laughs> Recrossed legs and closer inspection reveal that Trevor Axford's left sock, though not his right sock, is blue. Sinistral, his right hand missing digits from a fireworks accident three interdependence days past, axe handle is several... Okay, yes. Uh, this was, again, this was brought up a while ago. Uh, why does Axe Handle have, uh, why does Trevor Axford have missing fingers? And mm -hmm. It's a fireworks, it's a fireworks accident. 
Axe Handle is several uh, centimeters shorter than Hal and Condensa and is a true red-headed person with copper-colored hair and that moist, white, freckled, chalked skin that even through two layers of summer pledge only reddens and peels. <laughs> Plus, there's the matter of the enormous and forever chapped lips. And as a tennis player, he is like a less effective version of John Wayne. He does nothing but blast from the baseline without discernible spin. He's a junior from Short Beach, Connecticut, and under enormous family pressure to continue the male Axford tradition of attending Yale, and is academically so marginal that he knows his only chance to go to Yale is to play tennis for Yale, which would effectively blow any chance at a show-level future, and is high-ranked but has his competitive sights on nothing past a ride offer to Yale. <laughs> Though Ingersoll's informally in Hal's big buddy... Talk, talk about stress. Imagine yeah. ha- having a family, uh, a, a family pressure to go to Yale kill me man i mean it wasn't a family pressure but it was very clear to me from a very early age that the my goal in life as a human for my parents was to go to an ivy league school i can't i can't deal and i did not meet that goal but i did good good enough that they were happy with it it's probably good that you didn't uh no it would have (laughs) sucked i the one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life is getting rejected from columbia (laughs) waitlisted then rejected uh because if i had gotten accepted to columbia i would have gone and i think i would have hated it there yes uh not enough student activities <laughs> i'm i'm look the only point of college is activities the only point of college is partying and having fun yes exactly <laughs> you you actually learn nothing in college but what you do learn is how to interact with people on an adult level and maybe do some activities do some uh do some uh, uh, self-organized things. These are the things that I learned in college. How to produce, how to produce, how to make things. He's a producer, folks. I'm a producer. Uh, though Ingersoll's informally in Hal's big buddy contingent, he's technically in Axe Handles, they're both aware. And Hal's a little uncomfortable about his relief that none of the real Eschaton casualties were technically his buddies, which takes us to end note 212. Though it's unmentioned, everyone in the waiting room except in Kittenplan is keenly aware that Lord and Postal Wait are Pemulus's charges, Penn and Ingersoll axe handles, plus that neither Struck nor Troll seems to have been summoned for potential discipline. So All the boys who, who were partying during, uh, during Eschaton. Uh, so the disciplinary measures are purely based on little buddies. Little buddies. Back to the text, the only real thing Axford and Hal have in common on the court is a curious habit of refusing to ask for help from other courts when their balls go astray, (laughs) which takes us back to EndNote uh, 213. Since tennis courts are laid side to side and played on by hard-hitting but fallible humans, errant shots are always going off sticks' frames and net posts and even fences and bouncing and rolling into other people's territory. In starting at usually the quarterfinal rounds of serious tournaments, there are ball boys to retrieve them. In early rounds in practice, though, the delicate etiquette is that you suspend play and get other people's balls for them if they come rolling across and shoot them back over to the court of origin. The way to signal for this sort of help is to yell, sorry, or a little help on three or something. But both Hal and Axford seem constitutionally incapable of doing this, asking for help with errant balls. They both have to hold everything and go and run all the... <laughs> it's hard to wrangle all the way over to some other court halting at each intervening court to wait for a point to be finished to get their own balls it's a curious inability to request aid that no amount of negative reinforcement from Tex Watson or Aubrey DeLint can seem to correct it's very funny that one of the he named one of the characters Tex Watson after one of the Manson murderers mm, but funny. it's never referenced there's just so many names in this I know it's a, uh, lot, a lot of names in this book 
Back to the text. Pemulus has finally quit with the bobbing and folded the printout scroll of Pink 2 into a big ragged square and has sidled over to lateral Alice Moore's horseshoe-shaped desk and is bantering with her very casually, looking all around him as he banters, trying subtly to feel her out re whether maybe one of these Whataburger Jr. invitational invitations stacked cruciform female athwart male in lateral Alice's inbox concerns anybody with the male initials MMP by any chance. Pemulus and Moore would be less tight if she knew he dickied in at night and used her watts and modem, though she's very laid back and easygoing and not at all like the little framed thing by her name plaque with a scowling woman saying, I've got one nerve left and you're getting on it. (laughs) The little cartoon is just a standard like office worker gag. She'd summon them out of sixth hour with the same ancient intercom and mic system Trolch et al. get to commandeer for Saturday's WETA. Trolch has to be prohibited from playing with her chair and her transmitted voice had not been ungentle. Hal's face's left side feels queerly inflated, but then when he runs his right hand over it, it's always regulation size. He got a tooth <laughs> removed. Uh, administrative assistants worth their health benefits are synaptically evolved to the point where they can banter, accept compliments on a spandex and tool ensemble, effortlessly <laughs> deflect unauthorized info probes, listen to something bass-intensive on personal stereo headphones, and word process effortlessly to the headphones' backbeat all simultaneously. Lateral Alice Moore's bluish fingertips make her painted nails ten little sunsets. Lateral Alice Moore's desk chair's wheels fit on a track with an electrified third rail so she can slide from one corner of the horseshoe's arc to the other, more or less laterally, at the touch of a cerise desktop button. For post-Delco incident legal reasons, the name plaque on her reception desk has danger third rail instead of the name Lateral Alice Moore. How can hear Avril saying, Now, if I speak to all of you very gently about being touched by a tall person in an uncomfortable way, will you know what I mean? Have any of you been kissed or nuzzled or hugged or rubbed or pinched or probed or fondled or in any way touched by a tall person in a way that's made you uncomfortable? Hal can see one of his mom's stockinged legs terminating in a trim ankle and a very white Reebok extruding from stage right into the frame of the empty doorway, the Reebok tapping patiently, and one arm crossed over Avril's chest and the other arm's elbow resting on that arm and fluttering in and out of view as Avril taps at her teeth with a blue pen. Grandma pinches my cheek, one girl volunteers. She'd actually raised her hand to be called on, her wrist with its touching little blue Terry wristband. Hal hasn't seen so many pigtails and button noses and small berry-shaped mouths convened in one indoor place in who knows how long. Very few of the sneakered feet reach all the way to the thick shag in there, much leg dangling and absent uncomfortable sneaker swinging, a couple fingers in nostrils in absent contemplation. Ann Kittenplan, in her blue chair, is coolly appraising the little wash-offable tattoos she applies daily to the knuckles of her hands. <laughs> Uh, not quite what we're trying to speak of together right now, Erica, from someplace above the tapping foot and in and out arm. Hal knows the register and inflections of his mother's voice so well it almost makes him uncomfortable. His left ankle gives a sick squeak when he flexes it. Cords in his left forearm stand out and subside as he squeezes his tennis ball. The left side of his face feels like something far away that means him harm and is coming gradually closer. <laughs> he can make out just the whistly fricatives of Charles Tavis, Tavis's distant voice from behind his double office doors. It sounds somehow like he's speaking to more than one person in there. Charles Tavis's office's inner door also has the ID Dr. Charles Tavis on it, <laughs> and below that, his ETA motto about the man who knows his limitations having done. <laughs> she does it really hard, rebuts what must be Erica Ceres. 
I've seen her do it. What sounds like Jolene Kries confirms another. <laughs> I hate that. I hate it when some adult pats my head like I'm a schnauzer. The next adult that calls me adorable is in for a really unpleasant surprise, let me tell you. I hate it when my hair is tousled or smoothed in any way. <laughs> Kitten plans tall. Kitten plan gives Indian rub burns after lights out. Avril gives them verbal space, tries to gently, uh, tries gently to steer the topic closer to true feelism. Uh, she's subtle and very good with small children. That my daddy gives me these small little shoves in the small of the back when he wants me to go into rooms. It's like he influences me into rooms from behind. This tiny little irritating push that makes me want to let him have it in the shin. Mm-hmm. Avril muses. Well, this is uh, this is actually very triggering to me of being a small child and uh, adults. I feel like specifically my dad just moving me, moving me around. Moving you around. You do this. I, I told you about... I. I corrected you. Told you told me to stop. To stop trying and to I move have. me, and I don't. I don't like being moved. I won't. I won't. I won't move you. No, you. You've done a good job of not doing it Thank since you. I <laughs> asked you not to move me. But yes, uh, adults moving you when you're a child. Also, I mean, this is giving me a flashback. I would go with my dad to get ice cream from gr- the local graders, and he would not get an ice cream cone, and I would get an ice cream cone, mm-hmm. and then he would say, can I have a lick? And then eat like half of it. <gasps> That's horrible. I know. You've it, had some terrible dessert-based uh, parent crimes. I know. Uh, the th- I'll tell it on a, 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 It'll come up in a future show, but I'll, I'll tell the cobbler story somewhere on yeah. this um, Well, I'll remind you to podcast. tell the cobbler but, story. But I, it, I remember it pissing me off so much, but being... St- Did you start ordering um, larger cones to at least try to mitigate the damage? No, I no? probably got like two scoops mm-hmm. on a cone, and then, yeah, and he would just take huge licks. He would also frame it as like, oh, it's going to drip. Let me, uh, let me clean it up. And you're like, up. You, don't, it, you don't know that, man. Yeah, and then he would, he would like lick off like half of, half of the ice cream. Wow, I'm horrified on your behalf. I know, and it's, it's the kind of thing of being too young to articulate why it was pissing me off. Mm-hmm. That it, and it, but it always was like if you wanted fucking ice cream, just order it. Get your own ice cream. Don't take my ice cream. It's, I, I'm a child. Is this is like my main thing in life <laughs> yes. is that I like ice cream. I have barely any other preferences or opinions. Yeah. So like, get your own, dude. <laughs> but yes, Christ. that that thing about moving, uh, the being moved, mm-hmm. just like not having control of your own thing, mm-hmm. and. I, I appreciate the thing that he's trying to articulate that it is difficult <laughs> to be like, have you been molested? Yes. <laughs> you are a child and adults move you around all the time. They do things to you that you don't want. That's part of being a child. But is any of these child adult things that has been happening to you? Yeah. Is, is Are they one of the bad things? Right. It's <laughs> very funny. Yeah. It's impossible not to overhear because things out in the waiting room right now are so comparatively silent except for the tinny hiss of lateral Alice Moore's disengaged <laughs> headphones and the conspiratorial murmur of Michael Pemulus trying to get her to drum on her chest and describe <laughs> I-93 South and the Ponset exit ramp as one very long, thin parking lot. Things are so quiet because the anxiety level in Tavis's waiting room is high. You're all in for some serious pukers, is my prediction, and Kitten Plan had said to Pemulus as they all first answered the intercom summons, which was also about the time that Pemulus started in with a rodential chair squeaking that made one half of Kitten Plan's face spasm. One of the tricky and sinister things about corrective discipline at a tennis academy is that punishments can take the form of what might look like straight-out athletic conditioning, 
QV, the drill sergeant telling the recruit to drop and give him 50, etc. So, but this is why Gerhard Stitt and his pro-rectors are way more feared than Ogilvy or Richardson Levy O'Byrne Chawaf or any of the, <laughs> my, my favorite, or any of the regular academics. It's not just that Stitt's corporal reputation preceded him here. It's that Stitt and DeLint make out the daily schedules for AM drills and PM matches and resistance training and conditioning runs, but especially the AM drills. Certain drills are well known to be nothing more than attitude adjusters, designed to do nothing but dramatically lower life quality for a few minutes. Too brutal to be assigned on the daily basis that would contribute to genuine aerobic conditioning, drills like the disciplinary version of Tap and Whack, which takes us to EndNote 214, where it's a... Um, is all hyphenated. Non-overhead, run back to the baseline after an offensive lob, then run all the way back up and tap the net cord with your stick just as Nwangi or Thode hits another offensive lob over your head. You have to run back and get successfully back where they pile extra lobs onto your regular allotment. Pure pain fest. So that's like a suicide with, with returning tennis. a tennis serve. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Back to the text. Uh, tap and whack are known to the kids simply as pukers. Puker drills are really meant to do nothing but hurt you and make you think long and hard before repeating whatever you did to merit them. But they're still to all outward appearances, exempt from any kind of uh, Eighth Amendment protest or sniveling calls home <laughs> to parents insidiously, since they can be described to parents and police alike, which takes us to uh, EndNote 215. A Clipperton-level legend involves the now-long-gone little ETA who, in YWQMD, had called the Massachusetts Department of Social Services <laughs> and characterized disciplinary pukers as child abuse, <laughs> resulting in the appearance at the portcullis of two stitchy-mouthed and humorless DSS ladies who hung creepily around all day and required Stitz actually confining Aubrey DeLint to his room, so purply furious was DeLint with a kid who dropped the dime. <laughs> Uh, back to the text. Uh, this is also reminding me of when all my friends in high school joined, uh, started doing cross country running, and their pitch to me that is like, "You should do cross country so we can hang out while we're doing it." But also, it their their main pitch was, "It's great. You run until you puke, and then you run some more, and then you run some more." And I'm like, "That sounds awful." Yeah, I wish I I do I do wish I did it because I didn't do any uh, like sports in high school or athletics of any kind, and I got. Uh, fat. Uh, <laughs> and I wish that I, I, I really wish that there had been something in high school that was just like working out Yeah, that you could do as a sport where some, somebody with uh, some kind of like empathy would be like, here's how you go to a gym. We, ha like, we hey. had a gym in our uh, place and we did gym as a unit, just like the weight room was a unit in yeah. gym class. And it was so fun, honestly. Uh, we, I, we also had a uh, weight room unit. But I wish that that I wish that that was gym class instead of playing fucking pickleball or whatever pickleball or like frisbee golf as units. Just being like, you are fourteen years old. Here's how you go to a gym and like work out. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I was tra tracking your weights and your reps and stuff. I should yeah. get back into that. Um, back to the text. Uh, they can be described to parents and police alike as just drills assigned for your overall cardiovascular benefit, with all the actual sadism completely sub rosa. Kitten plans prediction that the upperclassmen are going to wear the whole brown helmet for the eschaton free-for-all is hopefully rebuttable by Pemulus's observation that eschaton's extracurricular impulse and structure had been firmly in place before any of them even enrolled. All Michael Pemulus had done was codify basic principles and impose a sort of matrix of decidable strategy, maybe helped create a mythology and established, uh, mostly through personal example, a certain level of expectation, all Hal done was act as amanuensis on a lousy manual. <laughs> the I-Day combatants had been out there of their own volition. 
Pemulus and Axford had gotten Hal to write out most of all of this in maximally rhetorical diction, which Pemulus had then embedded in a pink two printout so he could carry it around and study it and have it all nailed down before Tavis tried any boom lowering. (laughs) That's what he was studying, I see. Uh, The strategy is to let Pemulus do all the talking, but let Hal interject at will, the voice of reason, good cop slash bad. Axford's been instructed to count the uh, antron antron fibers between his shoes the whole time they're in there. Hal has no idea what it might signify that the headmaster summons hasn't come for almost 48 hours. It might be odd that it hadn't once occurred to him to see Tavis personally or to go to HMH and ask the moms uh, for intercession or info. It's not like he had the urge but resisted it. It hadn't even occurred to him. For somebody who not only lives on the same institutional grounds as his family, but also has his training and education and pretty much his whole overall raison d'etre directly overseen by relatives, Hal devotes an unusually small part of his brain and time ever thinking about people in his family, qua family members. Sometimes when he'll be chatting with somebody in the endless registration line for a tournament or at a post-meet dance or something, and somebody will say something like, how's Avril getting along? Or, I saw Oren kicking the ever-living shit out of the ball on an Onan... O-N-A-N-F-L highlights cartridge last week, (laughs) there will be this odd tense moment where Hal's mind will go utterly blank and his mouth slack and flabby, working soundlessly, as if the names were words on the tip of his tongue. Except for Mario, about whom Hal will talk your ear off. It's almost like some ponderous, creaky machine has to get up and running for Hal to even (laughs) think about members of his immediate family as standing in relation to himself. I relate. I relate to that. It's a possible reason Hal avoids Dr. Dolores Rusk, who always wants to probe him on issues of space and (laughs) self-definition and something she keeps calling the coat... Coat lick you complex, <laughs> complex, which takes us to end notes two sixteen, which just says no clue. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, uh, she's trying to do bodies and spaces with him. Indeed. Back to the text. Hal's maternal half uncle, T- Charles Tavis, is a little like the late himself in that Tavis's CV is a back and forth but not indecisive mix of athletics and hard science. A BA and doctorate in engineering, an MBA in athletics administration. In his professional youth, Tavis had put them together as a civil engineer. His specialty, the accommodation of stress through pattern dispersal, i.e. distributing the weight of gargantuan athletic spectatorial crowds. I.e., he'd say, he'd handled large live audiences, he'd been in his own small way, a minor pioneer in polymer reinforced cement and mobile fulcra. He'd been on design teams for stadia and civic centers and grandstands and mycological-looking superdomes. He'd admit up front that he'd been a far better team player engineer out there than out there upstate. Sorry, I'll read this again. (laughs) He'd admit up front that he'd been a far better team player engineer than out there up front stage center in the architectural limelight. (laughs) He'd apologize profusely when you had no idea what that sentence meant and say, (laughs) maybe the obfuscation had been unconsciously deliberate out of some kind of embarrassment over his first and last limelighted architectural supervision up in Toronto before the rise of Onanite interdependence when he did... Oh, yes, here we go. When he designed the Toronto Blue Jays novel and much ballyhooed Sky Dome ballpark and hotel complex (laughs) because Tavis had been the one to take the lion's share of the heat when it turned out that Blue Jays spectators in the stands many of them innocent children wearing caps and pounding their little fists into the gloves they'd brought with hopes of nothing more exotic than a speared foul ball that spectators at a distressing number of different points all along both foul lines could see right into the windows of guests having various and sometimes exotic sex in the hotel bedrooms (laughs) over the center field wall 
The bulk of the call for Tavis's rolling head had come, he'd tell you, when the cameraman in charge of the Sky Dome's instant replay video scoreboard, disgruntled or professionally suicidal or both, started training his camera on the bedroom windows and routing the resultant multi-limbed coital images up onto the 75-meter scoreboard screen, etc. Nice. Sometimes in slow motion and with multiple replays, etc. <laughs> Tavis will admit his reluctance to talk about it still after all this time. He'll confess that his usual former career summary is to say just that he'd specialize in athletic venues that could safely and comfortably seat enormous numbers of live spectators and that the market for his service had bottomed out as more and more events were designed for cartridge dissemination and private home viewing, which he'll point out is not technically untrue, just so much as not entirely open and forthcoming. <laughs> had I said that before... Is his, yeah, that his major professional embarrassment was, was that he built a stadium with next to a, a hotel where people fucked a lot. Yeah, I don't, I, I didn't know that detail. That's very funny. <laughs> uh, he's a, but he also gets to claim to be a victim of uh, the streaming wars. Of course. Yeah. Lateral Alice Moore is printing out Whataburger RSVPs. <laughs> the Intel 972 is cutting edge, but she clings to a hideous old dot matrix printer she refuses to replace as long as Dave Hard can keep it going. It's the same with the intercom system and its antiquated iron stand-up mic that Trolch says is an affront to the whole broadcasting profession. Can I just say at this point in this thing, I one of the things that's frustrating about this book is that I fucking love all these details, like him describing the dot matrix printer, or like like every like tiny tiny detail mm -hmm. about uh like what lateral Alice Moore is doing. Like the, the, this, this section is highly entertaining. All the backstory about Tavis, all, everything, but God damn, I just want something to happen. I want them to actually talk to Tavis. I want them to get punished. <laughs> and I'm, I, I feel like I'm edging. Like, I know. Come on, come on. Just get Do, go yeah. into the room. No, we have to find out the everything about everything before we can. Yeah, do that. I know. And, but that's, what's good about it. But that's also what's it's in, it's infinite. We're infinitely infinite. jesting here, man. We're infinite. The, the jest is infinite. All right, keep going. Uh, Lateral Alice has queer, eccentric pockets of intransigence and Ludditism <laughs> due possibly to her helicopter crash and neurologic deficits. <laughs> the printer's needly sound fills the waiting room. Hal finds he can be confident of his face's symmetry and saliva only when he sits there with his right hand over his left cheek. Each line of Alice's printed response sounds like some sort of supposedly unrippable fabric getting ripped over and over, a dental and life-denying sound. Is, it, is, is this supposed to be a dot matrix printer? Yeah. The sound of dot matrix printers is one of the most... I, I, I love the sound dot matrix, dot matrix printers make. Well, you might have to pull it up after. I don't, I don't recall. It's a life affirming sound for you then. It is. Do you know you don't know that sound? I, it's been you a might, while. This might be one of the micro generational differences of yeah. us is that I, I was, had an inkjet printer. Is that I was old enough to experience dot matrix mm. printers fairly regularly in my mm. in my small youth. Yes. And you did not. For Hal, the general deal with his maternal uncle is that Tavis is terribly shy around people and tries to hide it by being very open and expansive and wordy and bluff and that it's excruciating to be around. 
Mario's way of looking at it is that Tavis is very open and expansive and wordy, but so clearly uses these qualities as a kind of protective shield that it betrays a frightened vulnerability almost impossible not to feel for. Either way, the unsettling thing about Charles Tavis is that he's possibly the openest man of all time. <laughs> Orrin and Marlon Bain's view was always that CT was less like a person than like a sort of cross-section of a person. <laughs> Even the moms, how could remember relating anecdotes about how as a teenager when she'd taken the child CT... Oh, she's older. I didn't realize that. I thought they were maybe similar ages. She'd taken the child CT or been around him at Quebecois functions or gatherings involving other kids. The child CT had been too self-conscious and awkward to join right in with any group of the kids clustered around, talking or plotting or whatever. And so Avril said she'd watch him just kind of drift from cluster to cluster and lurk around creepily on the fringe, listening, but that he'd always say loudly in some lull in the group's conversation, something like, I'm afraid I'm far too self-conscious really to join in here, so I'm just going to lurk creepily at the fringe and listen, if that's all right, just so you know, and so on. I did not realize that Avril was a teenager and CT was a child. I don't like that at all. <laughs> but so, no, no age gap, but that's actually a thing. But so the point is that Tavis is an odd and delicate specimen, both ineffectual and in no certain ways fearsome as a headmaster, and being a relative guarantees no special predictive insight or quarter unless certain maternal connections are exploited, the thought of doing which literally does not occur to Hal. <laughs> this odd blankness about his family might be one way to manage a life where domestic and vocational authorities sort of bleed into each other. Hal squeezes his tennis ball like a madman, sitting there in the needly printout noise, <laughs> right palm against his left cheek and elbow, hiding his mouth, wanting very much to go first to the pump room and then to brush vigorously with his portable, collapsible oral B. A quick <laughs> chew of Kodiak is out of the question for several reasons. The only other time this year that Howe was officially summoned to the headmaster's waiting room had been in late August, right before convocation and during orientation period, when YDAU's new kids were coming in and wandering around clueless and terrified, etc., and Tavis had wanted Hal to take temporary charge of a nine-year-old kid coming in from somewhere called Philo, Illinois, <laughs> Philo, Illinois, who was allegedly blind, the kid, and apparently had cranium issues from having originally been one of the infantile natives of Ticonderoga, New New York, evacuated too late, and had several eyes in various stages of evolutionary development in his head, but was legally blind, but still an extremely solid player, which is all kind of a long <laughs> tale in, in itself, given that his skull was apparently the consistency of a Chesapeake crab shell, but the head itself so huge, it made boo-boo look microcephalic, and the kid apparently had on-court use of only one hand because the other had to pull around beside him a kind of rolling IV stand appliance with a halo-shaped metal brace <laughs> welded to it at head height to encircle and support his head. But anyway, Tex Watson and Thorpe had broken CT down over the kid's admission and tuition waiver. And CT now figured the kid would need to uh, say the least, need to say the least, some extra help getting oriented, literally. And he wanted Hal to be the one to take him in hand again, literally. Uh, it turned out a few days. Sorry, it turned out a couple days later that the kid had some kind of either family or cerebrospinal fluid crisis at home <laughs> in rural Illinois and wasn't matriculating now until the spring term. But back in August, Hal had sat in the very chair Trevor Axford is now nodding off in very late in the day, like dusk, having had an informal exhibition match with a visiting Latvian satellite pro. <laughs> <laughs> go and encouraging three sets that p.m. so that he'd miss Mrs. C's stuffed peppers at supper, his stomach making those where's the food noises <laughs> from around the transverse colon. <laughs> the noises my stomach makes every day, all yeah, the time. Where's the food? Where's the food? 
alone in the blue room, waiting, the chair bobbing reflexively, with lateral Alice Moore gone home to her long apartment with rooms only two meters wide. <laughs> long apartment. In Newton, and an opaque plastic dust thing wrapped tight over her Intel processor and intercom console, and the little red danger light on her danger third rail plaque unlit. And the only lights besides the weak dusk outside were the hot 105W of his chairback's creepy blue shaded magazine lamp, plus the multiple lamps on in Charles Tavis's office. Tavis has a phobic thing about overhead lighting. As Tavis was doing a late day intake interview on impossibly tiny little Tina Echt, who just matriculated this fall at age seven. His doors were open because it was a brutal August and FDV hard had somehow rigged lateral Alice's air conditioner vent in the waiting room. So it really put out. <laughs> Tavis's office's outer door opened out while the inner door opened in, which gave his little intradoor vestibule kind of a jaw-like quality <laughs> when exposed. A, li- a little longer just to... We're at like 39 minutes, so yeah, another like page or so. Yeah, okay. great. You know, got to keep plowing through. Yeah, I, I get this is a long section. Uh, this, is a, this is all very funny, though. Yeah. August YDAU had been when Hal's chronic left ankle had been almost the worst it's ever been after an rumpant but grueling summer tour of getting to at least the quarters of just about everything, mostly on hard asphalt, which takes us to end night 217. Hal had missed out on the soft grass, clay, and hard shoe surfaces of the junior slams because the singular disadvantage of attending a North American academy is that Onanta rules for junior slams permit just one entrant per academy in each age division, and John Wayne got the nods. Mm. Back to the text. Uh, He could feel his pulse in the vessels and the raw ligaments of the ankle as he sat flipping the shiny pages of a new world tennis and watching the little ad cards fall out and flutter. But he also couldn't help exploiting the open-jawed view of a substantial section of Charles Tavis at his office desk, looking, as usual, oddly foreshortened and small, with his hands together on the massive desktop across from a partial profile view of a girl who looked like she couldn't be much more than five or six, preparing to receive intake papers as she listened to Tavis. There'd been no ect parents or guardians anywhere in view. Some kids just get dropped off. (laughs) Sometimes the parents' cars barely even stop, just slow down, throw gravel as they accelerate away. Tavis's desk drawers have squeaky casters. Jim Strzok's folks Lincoln hadn't even much slowed. (laughs) Strzok had been helped to his feet and taken immediately to the locker room to shower the gravel out of his hair. (laughs) Hal had been in charge of his orientation, too, when Strzok transferred, booted out of Palmer Academy after his pet tarantula, named, (laughs) named Simone, another long story, escaped and wouldn't have even dreamed of biting the headmaster's wife if she hadn't screamed and passed out and fallen right on it, Strzok explained, as Hal helped picked as Hal helped pick up suitcases tumbled all over the drive. <laughs> Poor kid. Uh, <laughs> Simone the tarantula. I'm being a kid is tough. Like many gifted bureaucrats, Hal's mother's adopted brother, Charles Tavis, is physically small in a way that seems less endocrine than perspective perspectival his smallness resembles the smallness of something that's further away from you than it wants to be plus is receding <laughs> which takes us to end note two to 18 
the late J.O. and Condenses Meniscus Optical Products Limited's development of those weird wide-angle rear-view mirrors on the sides of automobiles that so diminish the cars behind you that federal statute requires them to have printed right on the glass that objects in mirror are closer than they appear, which little imprints in Condensa found so disconcerting that he was kind of shocked when U.S. automakers and importers bought rights on the mirrors way back for Incondenza's first unsettling entrepreneurial payday. ETAs like to postulate that the mirrors had been inspired by the always foreshortened Charles Tavis. <laughs> so they're suggesting that he invented uh, car mirrors? Yeah, rear view mirrors. Obviously, mirrors are closer than they appear. Have I told this story that when I was a kid, I would always notice that sticker, and it was when I knew how to read, but hadn't yet truly grasped some aspects of like grammar and spelling. So I thought the meaning of it was objects, uh, objects in mirror are closer than they appear, the and then they appear. Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> Making sense of the world. Anyway, back to the text. Um, Yes. Is, is that a, a place to stop? Uh, let's finish the paragraph. Okay, finish the paragraph. This weird appearance of recessive drift, together with the compulsive hand movements that followed his quitting smoking some years back, helps contribute to the quality of perpetual frenzy about the man, a kind of locational panic that it's easy to see explains not only Tavis's compulsive energy, he and Avril, pretty much the dynamic duo of compulsion between them, sleep in their second floor rooms in the headmaster's house, separate rooms, tend to sleep between them about as much as any one normal insomniac, <laughs> but maybe also contributes to the pathological openness of his manner. The way he thinks out loud about thinking about, <laughs> the way he thinks out loud about thinking out loud, a manner orthostice can imitate so eerily that he's been prohibited by the male 18s from doing his Tavis impression in front of the younger players for fear that the littler kids will find it impossible to take the real Tavis seriously at the time he needs to be taken seriously now let's stop okay all right i think this might be an, a semi-unorthodox um choice but casting charles tavis charlie day but he shaves his head into sides interesting yeah the it's a very specific type of guy you need to be frenzied and weird and awkward uh he like he he gives himself the ring, uh, but he, it's his actual hair. He shaves his head into the horseshoe, uh, balding pattern. Well, I believe Tavis is also known for having an elaborate comb over. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah, uh, Charlie Day does that. And the the thing I keep forgetting is, is that like he's Quebecois, weird, weird, small, neurotic, and French Canadian. Yeah, uh, or doing a French Canadian accent. I but think that could work. At both Avril and. Just CT don't have the same Quebecois affect that he puts in uh, Marath's speech, mm -hmm. for example. Yes. Which I guess is just like evidence of them Quebecois. Uh, assimilating. <laughs> 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 They've uh, assimilated to Boston culture. <laughs> yes. Um, and they're both academics, so that's its own culture as well. Uh, what do you see? Who do you see Avril as? Well,. I mean, I'm like, she's, th the thing about Avril is that she's very tall and very attractive, but she's older. Just like uh, Joelle. Just like Joelle. Mm, but Joelle is younger. Yes. Um, a tall, hot, older actress with a, an academic vibe. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, they don't really like actresses be, be older and hot <laughs> anymore. It's certainly not tall. Pulchritudinous. Yeah. Pulchritudinous? 
Yeah. What does that mean? It means good looking. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe he's used that word to describe her. I'm not just pulling it out of my <laughs> out of my ass. Uh, anyway, my review of this section is the thing that I said in the middle, which is like, I enjoy all this stuff. All the descriptions are very funny and interesting, and I enjoy getting inside uh, the internal lives and backstory of everybody and, and you know, good details and description that make you laugh and think and stuff. But Jesus Christ, get get to it. Come on. It might it might be it might take a while. We we might be this might be a 2022 problem of, of punishment. <laughs> getting, getting into. And I, mean, I don't I don't remember to to be fair, I don't I do not remember what happens in this probably because it is so goddamn <laughs> verbose. <laughs> I mean, it, the funny thing is that the eschaton we we read that section in July mm-hmm. and it's now December and yeah. that they're getting uh punished for it. <laughs> uh but that's the point of the book. You got to wallow in it. Having I've never had a tooth removed, but I've had uh, cavities filled, mm-hmm. and it is one of the weird, weirdest human experiences of being having like a numb mouth, like being alienated from your your, your own face and yeah. mouth. It's like it does. There's a reason that you know people have the teeth dreams. It's such an essential part of uh yeah. of being that when it like having Novocaine always freaks me out. God, I do. I have the. I do have the teeth dreams. Fairly often, I I constantly have dreams where my they're not they're loose. My teeth are loose. In yeah, the dreams. yeah. Why as as Hal says, he he when he woke woke up pricing dentures. <laughs> that that's the thing. And I'm sure maybe maybe other people can relate as well. Is that I it's you never I never lose teeth in dreams, and it's like oh well, uh you know I'm scre- screaming and crying and freaking out. I'm always like okay, well gotta make an, a dentist appointment, <laughs> or like oh gotta figure this out like. It always turns into like logic, which sucks. <laughs> yes, trying to. Yes, I, I, I absolutely know that feeling. Being inside a dream where you understand the logic of the dream is like illogical, mm-hmm. and then you're trying to rationalize what's going on inside the dream. Yeah, yeah. It's like my first, yeah. my first step is always to adapt to being like, okay, well, I guess this is my life now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that that <laughs> going back to the very beginning of the episode. That's how I felt inside that. Uh, that Ennett House dream where it was like, okay, all right, I know what this is. Mm-hmm. I'm inside Ennett House. Yeah. Now what? I've had dreams where I've I've been sentenced to death, and <laughs> uh, and ba- I'm like not. This has happened twice now. I've ba- I've basically gotten um executed in a dream, and it hasn't worked. Well, if you die in the dream, you die in real life. Well, appar- uh, apparently not. Um, or at least they didn't do a good job. But twice I've had to accept with equanimity that the fact that I'm going to die for something I did, uh, being punished in some way. Uh, and I I can I cannot assume I would be able to shore up the same kind of thing when I'm awake and alive. I, I think I'd be bugging. Punish Molly. <laughs> I've had dreams that the cops run me down for taking a magazine from a clothing <laughs> store. It's not the mind. My mind palace is not. Have we ever talked about this on the pod? Did did you shoplift when you were a kid? I took a un. If in Borders books, it was a pack of mini highlighters that didn't have a price tag on mm-hmm. them. Someone either had scraped it off or it never happened, so I I pocketed them. That and was you it. felt like that. I feel like. I don't have the um, the girl disease of uh, shop, of shoplifting. shoplifting clothes. And I was stuff. gonna bring that up. It's it, I I've always found that interesting. Of like, obviously, boy teenagers, as we're talking about in this section, uh, do 
dumb, stupid, bad th- things all mm-hmm. the time. Beating each other up. Out, yeah, it's outward facing. Punching each other in the dicks. And- oh, God. I had a long period where I had to be in constant guard of my friends because we were just punching each other in the dicks. Miserable. Uh, it was absolutely miserable. And I think we all hated it, but we could not stop from doing it. <laughs> That was just like, that's the thing that we're doing right now is that if you uh, catch your friend unsuspecting, you punch his dick. Oh, man. Uh, But I find it very fascinating that almost every girl I know had like a shoplifting phase Mm -hmm. from like age like 12 to 16, basically. Yeah. Yeah, no, it never, I I was lucky that it, it, I was way, way too lawful that I was worried about getting caught and stuff because, uh. Also, yeah, I'm a terrible liar as well, so it just yeah. doesn't. It was it was not the vice for me. I prefer to. <laughs> I prefer doing other stuff to yeah. to, uh, to damage myself. Yeah, uh, and in, indulge in a, uh, um, you know, f- feeling weird and bad. Uh, the he does. I think he does a good job of getting across in this section that feeling of like waiting to be punished, mm-hmm. and it's not even like hyper dread it's just like boredom Mm -hmm. of being like what is gonna happen uh who are and and just like the considering of all the other idiots that you're in you know you're waiting in the the lot with yeah being like oh god maybe how how can i pawn what i did wrong on these other guys like right who's gonna take the fall for this right what are what even are we doing you know, well, especially it's like you know, none of them. We we didn't start the fire. They were all just uh, yeah. Their their crime was inaction, and I would say, unfortunately for Pemulus, he did kind of rile them up, uh, but he, uh, uh, defensively so. Yeah, Th- that's the funny thing about this. You know, if the idea of this school is supposed to make you a professional tennis, a very good tennis player, mm-hmm. you're already professionalizing the kids and you're therefore maybe yes. thinking of them as having yes. a level of responsibility above your average guy. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, which, le- you know, leads to things like creating this elaborate game mm-hmm. that exists entirely outside of the like administrative, you know, circle. But then when something goes wrong, some, there, someone's got to, someone's got to go down. Uh, it might be pemulous. Uh, yeah. And, and in encouraging psychotic, uh, competitiveness right and then being surprised that that uh, it leads to something like that yeah uh i remember um i've told you the story of uh the last time i played organized sports was in like sixth grade Mm -hmm. i was on the tennis team or not the tennis team the basketball team uh because i was very tall uh but i hated 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 playing tennis or uh basketball (laughs) um but there was one kid on my team. You who, have told this story twice now on this podcast. <laughs> yes, really. The kid who uh, freaked out so bad and that he had like uh, that he had like heart palpitations. Yeah, yeah. And, Like had to be like laid down. Yeah, this guy is like your um, your uh, uh, not uh, white whale. No, I mean, I think a lot of this <laughs> book reminds me rem- uh, reminds me of the, this. Of is that, that guy. these these kids these are kids that are guy. that guy? And did I tell the part where? Uh, a few years later, he had to be taken to the hospital <laughs> in a high school because he dove into a fence playing frisbee golf I, I or be- something. I believe I believe you said that as well. <laughs> yes, and and like strained his neck or something, and the had gym, to wear a neck brace. For gym a while. class hero. He is a gym class. Hero. A gym class hero. Is well, I'm to sorry be. to all the listeners if I've told that story before, but th- that that is the kid <laughs> that like uh, 
all the side characters in this book, uh, like John and Arwain, um, remind me of. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like kids who, I guess through no fault of their own, have like a psychotic uh, competitiveness uh, born into them from this thing that they are being asked to do. Yeah. I have a I have a competition in me. Is that a, is that a P.T. Anderson movie speech that someone makes at some point? I have a competition in me. Yeah. Anyway, I, was a, I don't know why that that came to mind. Anyway. Ah, <laughs> uh, tennis. Ah, uh, tennis. Uh, what? How about this? Non-competitive sports. Non-competitive sports. Uh, Just for fun. Uh, Recreation. Collaborative sports. Just re- let's uh, see how many points we can all get together. Together. <laughs> I mean, again, that reminds me of seeing that uh, football game in in London. Of every everyone was just cheering for every good for, play. Yeah, just sports. Nice job, guys. Yes. Well, well done, good, you. Good. Well played. Well played. Well played. Alas, that is not that's yeah. not the American way. Somebody's got to win. The free market does and not support sucks. it. Yeah. I hate when people win. <laughs> They hate to see a girl boss winning. <laughs> I hate to see a girl boss winning because it means another girl boss losing. Oh. And I, th- I feel for the losing girl boss. <laughs> what? Why can't we all be the girl boss winning? Well, the the market uh, the market can't support it. Yeah, it's true. As a oh god, who? Oh, one of my favorite Mad Men things was uh, when Megan again French Canadian. Uh, wants to be an actress and her chic uh, mother says basically is like stop stop having this dream Uh, the world can't support uh, so so many ballerinas (laughs) Uh, you can't have if if every chick who wanted to be a a prima ballerina you you can only have like four of them (laughs) at a time (laughs) every and, and that's a sad thing one must consider is that every ballerina is another girl who can't be a ballerina. Of like 50 girls. Yeah. A hundred girls. A thousand a girls. A thousand girls. There's only so many gecks, you know? <laughs> There's only, uh, the world The world can't support so many gecks. Anyway, do you think uh, dissolving into to nonsense? Yeah. We call it? Should we call it? <laughs> yeah. Probably. Right. How, 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 uh, how have a doing? merry and a happy and another merry while we're at it. Um, um, we we'll might be, be we might be off next week. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it but out. But we'll we'll be back eventually. We'll be oh, yeah, and the, we might see you in twenty twenty two. Yeah, the year of the uh, um, well, well, the year of the uh, NFT. The year of the NFT. The year of the Ethereum coin. <laughs> God. Year of the ETH. Year of crypto dot com. Year of crypto dot com. All right. 